G'day and welcome to another episode of Perth Property Insider. I'm your host, Jared Mann, and today I'm excited to have Stuart Wames from Pro Solutions Private Clients back for part two of our discussion on how to minimise tax through the three phases of investing. In this part, we get stuck into capital gains tax, one of the biggest uh, costs we can have in taxes. We're going to go through the use of structures, who they're for, who they're not for, benefits, some of the disadvantages, as well as how to find a tax advisor and my personal experiences with accountants and what does holistic accounting actually mean. So got lots to cover, really looking forward to it. Let's go inside. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth Property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management specialists servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here is your host, Jared Mann. So, we get to the end. We're needing to sell one of our properties. The day has come for us to take this cow to market and cash it in. Capital gains tax, what do we need to think about here? I guess the first comment would be, let's hope you have a massive capital gain. <laughs> well, this you is know. a very good point that you raise because you would not believe in my sales side of uh, the business. I'm conti- I continually have discussions and people are worried about, oh, you know, if we sell over that, that that's going to mean I have to pay lots of capital gains tax, Jared. And yep. I hear it almost a few times a month. So <laughs> I know it seems obvious to you and I, but how do you? What do you speak to that uh, mindset? What do you say to it? Well, I mean, if you made a big capital gain, uh, no, look, put it different differently. If you've got a massive capital gains tax bill, it means that you've kept probably seventy five percent of the actual gain after tax. So either way, the tax man's won, but you've won three times as much. So, mm. which is not a which is not a a reason to ignore it and say, oh well, it is yeah. what it is. You know, who cares? But really, let's put it in perspective. The whole point about owning property is you get that compounding capital growth and it can dollar value-wise, it can be some of the best investments you'll ever make. Uh, And sure, you've got to pay some tax at the end, but the benefit is you haven't had to pay tax along the way. You've you've been able to reinvest. Without receiving tax like other instruments such as shares and things. Yeah, exactly right. So there's some benefits there. So I I think firstly, put put it in perspective. But- um, the second a bit of advice I would have is is work out what's the probability of needing to sell a property. Now, of course, we don't know what the future holds and, you know, things can change and we might need to sell a property that we don't expect that we want to, or in fact, we might decide, you know, it's not performing or it's a great time to mm. exit the market, whatever it might be. And I but guess I think this it- can tie into potentially your plans with your, your home and how that relates to you know, what you're going to do and what other money is going to come out of that or needed to upgrade at some point too. Yep. Um, lots of factors that go into that. There's lots of factors and, and there's some unknowns as well. So, you know, you can't overthink it, but by the same token, you don't want to give it no thought as well. Uh, so I would encourage people to think about what is their strategy. Now, if if their strategy is it's likely they're going to need to sell a property or, or properties, then they want to start thinking or putting a little bit of weight towards minimising capital gains tax. Uh, And there might be a few things that they can do or think about. So, 
using a family trust to give them the discretion to distribute that gain across many people or, or, or entities, spreading ownership amongst two or more people. So put, put it in both spouses' names or however that might be. Or a self-managed super fund, uh, which you know used to be so common, uh, particularly really from yeah, it was oh seven crazy to, period there. Yeah, twenty fifteen. Everyone was doing it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But you know, it can be a really valuable thing. But you know, you get it into pension phase, and you won't pay any capital gains tax. Well, zero tax. You can't actually get much better than that. And if that's the strategy, you know, maybe it is actually wise then to to buy one of those assets inside a, a self-managed super fund. But you've got to you've got to have the context of a strategy to make that decision, because if you're in a situation where you can build a strategy that doesn't require you to sell any property, well, then you don't disregard capital gains tax. But you know, I wouldn't be adding a lot of weight to it because, as I said, at the end of the day, yeah. if you're paying a lot of tax, you're paying a lot of tax. So, um, even just looking, I mean, if you were to put it in a discretionary trust, I did some some calc. So, if you if you crystallize a one million dollar taxable gain and it was in one person's name, you pay four hundred and forty grand of tax. If you're able to actually distribute that one million dollar gain across four people. Um, you're going to pay $352,000 in tax. So about an $88,000 saving, 20%. Now, you've made a million-dollar gain, right? So, um, we're And we're talking about $88,000. I don't want to be flagrant. It's a lot of money, but it's probably not life-changing, right? So whether you pay four forty dollars or three fifty, dollars again, no one wants to pay more. But in this in this scenario or strategy, that's the, only, that's the taxable amount. So they've made a $2 million gain. And they've paid eighty-eight thousand dollars more tax. Again, it's not a big deal. It's not a life changer. Something to something to think about. But if you're yeah. paying, well, I'm 400... glad you mentioned the top number there because we're talking about a two million dollar gain, fifty percent discounted off because you've held it more than a year, yep. and then paying tax on the million. So that made a bit more sense. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So you end up paying five percent more tax just by it all going into one person's name. But as I said, you're still going to end up with more north of one and a half million dollars of cash in your pocket. Mm-hmm. So it's like anything, you know, you can't develop a tax strategy to minimize one particular tax because there's always pros and cons. You might minimize capital gains tax, but you, it'll come at the cost of uh, income tax or something like that. There's never a magic bullet. It's really about balancing these things out and then balancing it out from an investment strategy perspective and then from an asset class perspective as well. So, And needless to say, uh, with you guys also being holistic and considering finance, that's another big piece to puzzle too. It's no point electing a you know structure that for that person's situation is going to limit their finance bank options to so few that they're not able to refinance ever or, you know, they're trapped basically with the with the one lender. Yeah. So yep. there's lots of moving parts here, Jared, mm. and and tax is only one of them. It is an important one. It's one we all like to focus on, but we must remind ourselves that there are lots of other considerations and it is only one of those considerations, but an important one. So we've touched on the use of trusts and structures a bit. We haven't given we haven't covered accounting at all over the last year um, <laughs> for some of our uh, newer uh, investors who may not have gone into trusts and structures and even some of the seasoned ones that want to see how this all fits together a bit better what are some of the uses of trust and structures and how this fits together what's some of the benefits of buying in a trust or a company instead of personal names 
the benefit of a trust, uh, a, co- a company you would use in some circumstances of I, as I've spoken about, but they're, they're pretty specific circumstances. So um, normally it's really personal name or trust or self-managed super fund. They tend yeah. to be the sort of common three options and, and probably trust and personal name are the com- two top uh, most common. Uh, so the advantage of putting it into a trust means you have tax flexibility later on, a flexibility on how to distribute income and then flexibility on how to distribute realised realized capital gains. So when um, you say distribute, that basically means, you know, you've got income in the trust from the property being owned in there and you're deciding just discretionarily where that income goes and whose tax return it shows up on. Exactly right. You can distribute to different spouses. You could distribute to um, children or adult children. You could distribute to you know uh, parents, relatives, and family. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Self-funded retiree parents, those sorts of things. So it gives you that flex, and you can change that from year to year depending on what's going to produce the the best tax benefit. Uh, now, as a general rule, I mean, people quite often ask, you know, Stuart, do, should I use a family trust? As a general rule, I would say that if you're PAYG, if you're an employee, you're not self-employed, you should not use a trust. Hmm. And there's two reasons for that. The first one is that any negative gearing, so any losses that the property makes, is trapped inside the trust. You actually can't use hmm. it against your personal income. Um, you can carry it forward, so you'll get the eventual use of it, but everyone knows a dollar now uh, is better than a, a dollar in 20 years' yeah. time. So, um, Depending t- on your strategy, of course, but going back to the phases, I would suggest someone creates growth in their portfolio first and then income, mm. which is to more income later. Otherwise, they're just not going to have the size of the asset base to get the income that they're going to need. Uh, there are those that go out and, you know, focus on cash flow properties and, you know, they might have the positive income from day one. But again, that's going to be a very long road to acquire enough cash flow positive properties to hope to replace your income. That's right. But even if you have a positive cash flow property from a cash perspective, it's not necessarily positive from a taxation perspective, particularly if you've got depreciation, right? Mm -hmm. So then you've still got, you might have a property that's giving you positive cash flow, but you know, it's creating a tax loss. In that situation, it's still better off to have yeah. it in your in your personal name. True. So, uh, so the, the the negative gearing, and then obviously, if you overlay then potentially higher land tax in some states, those two things generally make it less attractive for mm. a PRYG person to use a trust. If you're self-employed and you have business income that you can distribute through a sort of trust structure or even unit trust structure or so forth, then um, putting a property in a family trust could be. A good idea. Now, I won't say it's always a good idea because then you'd think about um, the two things I'd think about is uh, land tax and asset protection. So, are there any specific asset protection concerns? Because if so, maybe asset protection starts to become more important than tax consequences, and you might then put it in a trust. But if there are no asset protection uh, concerns, then uh, then you just have to look at land tax. Uh, and then also future t- income tax uh, flexibility. But if they're self-employed, they're probably going to have a bit of te- uh, additional flexibility in other areas in, in their, their business structure. Correct in their situation, so it's it's less of a concern. But I mean, a lot of people ask about trusts, and a lot of PAYG people ask about trusts. Mm. Um, and it's a and shiny so- object, isn't it? And you know, I think a lot of accountants <laughs> capitalise on the complexity that it creates too. Yeah. Yep. Without you know, speaking too harshly, but 
that complexity uh, leads to higher ongoing accounting fees, initial setup fees, you know, basically more of the accountant's time to maintain these structures and submit the, prepare the financials and submit the tax returns for them. And, and very often you look at the the net gain of all this and and they're actually losing out by setting it up in the first place. Yeah, that's right. And and they could be worse off, like from a taxation perspective or land tax perspective, they could end up being worse off. So, um, I mean, just get some good advice about it and yep. really understand the the pros and cons and go into it uh, eyes wide open. I, I think if you do that, you're probably then going to make the right decision. Um, whereas just blindly going, oh, well, I'll put this in a trust and not really thinking about it uh, carefully and thinking about all those tax elements that we've spoken about, income tax, capital gains, um, uh, CGT tax. and land tax. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Without thinking about all those elements, well, uh, then you then you risk making a mistake. And of course, none of this episode has been a specific uh, financial or accounting advice, uh, disclaimer in brackets. <laughs> Um, So how would someone actually go about finding a tax advisor that's going to give them specific advice for them? I would, uh, I'd have two bits of advice in in regards to that. I would find an investor that has been successful, a property investor, or just investor generally, I guess, um, that has been successful. I think it's important from my perspective anyway for your accountant and advisors to understand property because Mm. I've seen the outcome of those that really don't like property and, you know, I often question their motives, especially when financial advice is concerned and they're not independent and they're they're gearing them towards uh, all the products that they can make a commission from rather than holistic advice that's independent. Sorry to jump in there. No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> I can uh, I can speak more strongly sometimes to, about <laughs> my preferences with being given that I'm not a financial advisor or accountant. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I mean, it makes sense though. I mean, uh, you never ask your barber whether you need a haircut. You know, like as Warren Buffett says, if they've got a vested interest, you got to be skeptical about advice because you're not getting advice. It, it could often be just a sales spiel rather than advice. So something to be very uh, aware of. I think also, you know, you, you mentioned are they investors themselves? It is actually a relevant, uh, a relevant consideration because we, we tend to think very deeply about our own issues and our own challenges and our own tax position mm. and our own financial plans. Which is not to say we think deeper about it um, uh, than our clients, but we think we think probably more often about it. Yeah. And so, so if you've got an investor, they're a property investor themselves, or they've been doing developments or whatever it is that is your accountant has been doing this, they're likely to have come across all the same issues that you're about to. And so they can, and if not for themselves, then they've done it for other clients. Mm. And, you know, that experience, and we can all all replicate knowledge, you know, very easily, but um, experience, there's no shortcuts to, right? So if they've been doing it for 20 years, they've learned a lot of things along the way and they can help guide you to avoid making those common mistakes. Mm. It's the same reason with my property managers we hire. And the vast majority have property investments themselves, definitely their own homes, you know, understand maintenance, understand troubleshooting of things, understand that mindset and the the empathy that you can they can give to the client because they've walked in their shoes, you know. They've yeah. made had to make the same decisions that that they're facing. Yeah, there's a really good saying, perhaps it's a bit crude, but I really like it. It's um, a poor man can't teach another poor man how to be rich. Only a rich man can teach a poor man how to be rich. 
and, and it's really you know partly mindset i guess and then partly the other part is experience so if you go and find a, a an investor that's been successful uh, yeah, that's um that likes their you know not likes their accountant that feels their accountant has has provided value because that's really the key component or feedback that we we get from clients is that oh mm. they're okay they complete the tax return but there's no value add there's no pro productivity yeah. there's nothing like that and so if you can find someone like that get the referral i think getting a referral you know when you find when you need to find a professional that's going to be in a position to be able to deliver a lot of value uh, to you, the referral is the best way to find them, I think, because, you know, word of mouth, it just makes sense. And what else are you going to do? Google or something like that. I mean, hmm. you know, that that's that's not going to get you there. Uh, so that's my first bit of advice, go by referral. And then my second bit of advice is don't judge the service on its price. And, and that can that can go both ways, by the way. So I've seen... Well, you have to um, look at both sides of the coin, don't you? And people often ask us, what are our fees for property management or what are my fees for selling? It's only half the equation. It's like, okay, well, what can we do to improve your returns, add value, save you money, put those two things together and then you've got the real cost of that service. And unfortunately, some of my last accountants that I've had and I think it can take a bit of time sometimes to work out what the true cost is of that accountant too. So... Yep. I've had situations where in moving to the next accountant, uh, they've then asked different questions, looked at things differently, found massive ways for me to save uh, tax and I can't go back and claim, you know, for all the years that the other accountant uh, didn't pick up on these things. So, As a, a client, actually a client in WA said to me recently, you just don't know what good looks like. Right, so you're mm. an accountant, and you think it's oh, it's okay, but you don't really know what good looks like. Well, it's kind of good when you've had bad experiences. <laughs> yeah, little, well, that makes it a although a lot we don't easier. want to go through them. Uh, it also helps people choose us for property management. Likewise, when they know what vacancy is, when they know that sure. if their property's been trashed, if they if someone's placed a tenant in their property that hasn't worked out, and oh, were they really vetted and screened properly? Should they've been in there in the first place? You have a couple of these experiences and likewise on the tax side, you know, I've had fringe benefit tax hand- handled so poorly from my business that it was a $14,000 bill when it could have been $1,200. Yep. I had, um, I was not distributing to parents-in-law or asked the question to and it was costing me, you know, 40000 a year when I had yep. the structures already set up to do so. Couple of examples straight off the top, and you can tell yep. that they are <laughs> from the deep-seated uh, areas of pain. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem is, Jared. So, you know, with accounting fees, high fees don't also mean you've got value either, right? Yeah. So I've seen some clients pay some stupidly high fees to their accountant, and the outcome has been poor. Like the mm. advice has been poor, so they've paid twice because they've paid too much tax and they've paid too high a fee. But then the flip side is I've seen clients pay very small fees to their account and get no value. So unfortunately, we kind of in the absence of any other measure, we tend to use price as a measure of value. Um, and it's not always a good measure of value when it comes to accountants. So I would think that the rock bottom price is probably not going to get you any proactive advice. And really what you want, anyone can produce a tax return. Well, any decent accountant can produce a tax return and do it in a way that's going to keep you out of jail and comply with the laws and et cetera, et cetera. 
But that's not really what you want. What you really want is a really good accountant can add lots more value than what they subtract in fees. Well, if they're going to, if if they've got so tight margins, they're never going to have any time to sit back and think about a particular client. That's never you know, it's never going to get you there. But that doesn't mean mean you need to go and pay twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year either, right? So it is a difficult situation because mm. it's not always the more you pay, the more you get. Sometimes it's the more you pay, the less you get, and that's even yeah. even worse. But don't be afraid to pay. Is what I'm trying to say. A fair fee, a fair exchange mm. in value. Um, if the accountant's good and they're going to sit down and really think deeply about your situation, well, they should be fairly rewarded for that. Um, and if you've got a good accountant, uh, whatever they charge in fees, uh, they will deliver far in excess of that amount mm. in value over time. So, The one challenge I've found, and maybe you can speak to this, is when you're starting out your journey, you've got to kind of find an accountant that's ahead of, further ahead than you. But it's very difficult when you begin and you might not have the financial means or the portfolio and assets built at that time. Accountants, financial planners, they're specialised. They they want to add as much value to their clients as well. Their time, the more skilled they are, the higher the cost of their time. So you can't, when you're starting out, often just walk in off the street and get the very best accountant in town. A, you probably couldn't afford them. B, they probably wouldn't accept you as a client because they can't add enough value. Yeah, and and so it's it's this difficult starting out period, uh, and it, the same goes for financial advisors. And you know, we can we'll get you back, and we'll have certainly more topics to discuss next year on the land in that area. Um, yep. But what can you speak to that? Because I found that difficult in my journey, and I get a lot of people that are that are at that starting out asking me, "Who should I use as an accountant?" Well, I don't have a, a re- referral for them myself it's- often. Yeah, it's a challenge. I used to think, and as a rule of thumb, you should use an accounting firm. You know, if you've got a a service business, uh, you should use an accounting firm that's of similar size that your business is. So if you've got 10 staff, go and find a firm that has around 10 staff. Typically, that's a kind of good fit. But if you've got 10 staff, don't go to a big four firm that has 2,000, 4,000, whatever the big four have Mm -hmm. these days because you'll end up paying way higher fee and there's just not enough scope to add value. I don't know if that rule of thumb is perfect in every situation, but it's really something to think about. So, you know, if you've got 50 staff and you've got a a one-man band, they're probably not going to have the resources to deal with the gamut of issues that a size of a business needs to deal with um, in that regard Hmm. and and vice versa. As you're speaking to now, you know, it does become a bit more your complexity is up there when you've got the business accounts, your personal accounts, your your investing wrapped in there, and these are good points for those that have a business. But yep, what does the individual do? <laughs> the individual just needs to find another good individual, yeah. and if they grow, if they grow beyond that, realize that that's uh, that's a good point. Don't be afraid to get to a point where you outgrow your accountant. Yep. The relationship doesn't have to be a forever one. It's what you can afford and the best advice that you can get at that time. And you don't go back and kick yourself for getting the best advice is better than no advice. <laughs> yep. So that's yep. probably a good place to, to end things on for most people. Yeah, that's right. And I think you're spot on, Jared. It's about finding the best person for you at that particular time. And that might change over time. So you might end up outgrowing your accountant because you've got a wider gamut or need of services. And that's fine. No big deal. You know, um, people move around. We all understand that. 
as accountants ourselves. And, you know, it's just about delivering value. Mm. So where do you fit into the overall picture? Just as a final thought, if someone who's listening thinks that they like your approach and and might want to go further to see if you're a potential fit for working with them? Uh, Well, Jared, we work with clients help them develop a long-term strategy and um, and then work with them over the years to execute on that strategy. Um, and we like to inspire our clients to adopt a holistic approach because for that's the, been for- the biggest difference I've found because I used to be in the middle trying to pull together the finance broker, the accountant, the fi- financial planner, everyone telling me different things, my head's spinning. One doesn't know what the other's thinking. And and you don't understand holistic until you have it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which so that's is a good what, plug for you. <laughs> yeah, th- thanks, Jerry. Which is like what that other client said is, you know, you don't know what good looks like. So because so many things are interrelated, you know, whether particularly with property, you've got tax, you've got financing, you've got financial planning, you've got cash flow, you've insurance. got asset protection, yep. insurance. You know, there's a lot of things, and I don't want to overcomplicate it, and no. I don't mean to overcomplicate it. But by the same token, if you simplify no, I don't want it too much, to have listened to this episode and had their heads spin and thought, <laughs> you know, geez, this, <laughs> this accounting and accounting world's a lot uh, more complex than I thought. But you know, you start out, you take action, you don't let paralysis get in the way. But then, if you want to go deeper and start optimizing these things, that's where the right accounting can help. Yeah. But keep going with the. Uh, what you're about because yeah. I just got excited there. <laughs> it's okay, no dramas. <laughs> yeah, so we inspire our clients to adopt a holistic approach, which means that we will typically look after everything for them. We will help them develop a long-term strategy, so the financial planning piece. Um, we will uh, make sure we've got a financing strategy that underpins that, which is really the borrowing piece, if that's necessary. Um, and, and then uh, me as a financial planner work hand-in-hand with our accountants to make sure that we're going to then deliver on value. Because actually, the it's a really interesting thing. I was having a conversation with a client this week about profit distribution. You know, when you at the end of the year, what are you going to do with your profit? If you're particularly if you're self-employed, on one hand, you want to make good long-term decisions. On the other hand, you need to have the flexibility to make different cha- slight changes or, or sometimes substantial changes year to year, right? And there's a tension there because you don't want to make really short-term decisions. Uh, but also uh, you don't want to ignore the long-term outcomes either. Mm. So, And what um, do you decide to distribute has a direct impact on what you can then borrow, yep. which feeds into your overall wealth creation plan. And, that's and how, much, how much you'll be able to reduce debt if that's necessary as well, like if you've got home loan debt. These are disconnects when we're taking advice from our accountant versus our finance broker yep. versus. Yep. So a collaborative approach then between financial services professionals, advisors, accountants, and so forth, yields then the best answer. Um, and you're only going to get that collaborative approach in a, in the one firm. Uh, it would be nice to think that you could just match, you know, different unknown professionals together and get them to collaborate. I guess theoretically it should work, uh, but practically it never does. People have different ways of thinking, you know, do things differently, different relationships with the clients, other people don't want, you know, don't tell me what to do. That's a tax thing and a financial planner shouldn't get involved, et cetera. Too many personalities. So it just doesn't work and ends up mean that the client is the conduit 
and the meat and the sandwich, if you like, uh, and they don't know enough either to decide what's relevant and not relevant. So, you know, having a collaborative approach uh, on a financial services perspective yields the best outcomes. And that's what we do. No worries. Wow. <laughs> Pro Solutions is where you work. You can see details for their website in the show notes. And we nearly wrapped into another episode there of uh, <laughs> what is holistic advice and we how to did. financial planner slash accountant slash finance. It's <laughs> good. That's it. But thanks for joining us uh, for your episodes in um, 2021 and have a fabulous Christmas break uh, for you and your family. And I look forward to chatting again in the new year. Thanks, Jared. It's been a pleasure.